D.A. Sky Thorleafson presents Adaptational, the hardcover edition. Revisiting the best episodes of our first season, plus newly recorded content that was not featured during the original run. Join us at the end of the episode for our special new segment, The Appendices. For those seeking further insight into the source material, its history in cinema, and my personal connection to it. Now, enjoy the show. Today's episode was originally released on December 12th, 2018, and contains vulgar language that is not suitable for all audiences. Warning, this episode contains vulgar language, mature subject matter, political viewpoints, and content not suitable for all audiences. If you are in the presence of young children or anyone offended by anything, please ensure there is a minimum of three walls between you and them while listening. Please refrain from punching anyone within 10 feet of you in the face. Furthermore, we ask that you have all emergency gear on standby, and we remind you that listening to this episode is not safe for work and that the viewpoints expressed are solely those of the- LET'S START A FUCKING WAR! nation under the new mania hey can you hear the sound of hysteria the subliminal might fuck america Gentlemen, welcome to the season one finale of Adaptational. My name is Sky Thorleson, here to continue the discussion about the adaptation process, what's great about the stories, and what happens when they become movies. Who You get the fucking point, okay? And who the hell cares what happened since last time? Your lord and savior has something to say. I'm the son of Rachel Love. The Jesus of Siberia, the Bible If you've known me personally in the last five years, you know one thing to be the absolute truth. I idolize Green Day. There are two eras of rock music, BGD or before Green Day, and now. Some of you may think that BGD, well, shouldn't that be called the Who Age? Nope, don't care. If anything, it's the Queen Age, and even then, that's more designated specifically for Freddie Mercury. 
with brief appearances by Elton John, David Bowie, and the Sex Pistols. Every year from the release of 39 Smooth onward, that's all the designated property of Billy Joe Armstrong, Trey Cool, and Mike Durnt. If I was swimming in money, I would pretty willingly fork over the $100 it would cost to buy their entire collection off of iTunes, just so I could have an album cover art that would show up on my iPhone rather than have no cover art I now get from downloading those off of my CDs. And then marathon their entire discography from start to finish over the course of an entire day. Well, okay, maybe highlighting the best songs from Uno Dos Trey and skipping the rest so that I can get to Revolution Radio faster. We don't talk a lot about 2012 in general. Green Day defines my taste in music like no other band ever possibly could. And of course, as an idiot teen born in the 90s, American Idiot will always represent the purest manifestation of their vision both at the time of its release and just as much today. It's the ultimate concept album for the 21st century. It is, to my generation, what Tommy and the Wall were for my parents' generation. A sharp, bombastic, lyrical expression of all the rage and love that rabble-rousing teens have felt from the Bush administration onward. I wasn't even one of those dumb rapscallions when I was a teen, but that doesn't stop me from seeking out my own meaning in these songs, finding ways that they apply to my mind, my anxieties, my relationship with the world. I've known plenty of Green Day fans in my life, but that's never stopped me from feeling like American Idiot was somehow made specifically for me. Now, I doubt it's actually necessary for me to put on my announcer voice persona one more time before the show begins, but I should mention and reiterate beforehand that while this is in the tradition of my intellectual discussions from previous episodes, trying to be an intellectual while talking about American Idiot is kind of like being a film critic when you're talking about Fight Club. It can be intellectualized, very effectively so, but the reason why you listen to this album in the first place is to vent to release all of your pent-up rage and love and let everything flow in one massive fuck you. There may be a little bit more of my trademark sentimentality closer to the end of this episode, but at the same time, if I embrace that fuck you mentality, then I won't feel any shame and I won't apologize. Oh yeah, and spoilers, I guess. Is that even necessary for an album that's 14 years old? American Idiot is the story of Jesus of Suburbia. What, you were expecting subtlety from this genre? They literally proclaimed themselves God's favorite band in their last album. Jesus is an alienated young man in an alienating time, raised in a community of apathetic people who are meant to be ignorant of the chaotic state of their nation. These problems are so obvious that Jesus can find his own version of a prophetic statement in the bathroom stalls of a 7-Eleven. And you know what? Jesus fucking cares. Sick of being force-fed one specific image of the American dream, drinking, smoking, and consuming crack cocaine to keep him stupid and ignorant, he takes his life into his own hands. He leaves his old home behind to find life in a new city, a new cause, a new identity, possibly a new relationship, to rewrite 
the 21st century for his own liking. And we've come full circle. We started this podcast with one story about a disenfranchised teen. Now we end on one with almost the exact same pitch, just with more drugs and more harsh language. Holden Caulfield basically is the Jesus of suburbia, a young man wandering the streets of a city full of people he doesn't like or understand, searching for some kind of light or purpose, maybe a girlfriend, but ultimately finding that he can't rely on anyone. Maybe if whoever wants to try adapting Catcher in the Rye is listening, have a listen to this album and you'll get some sense of how Holden's ideology still lives in American culture. Actually, in fact, I'm just going to say it right now. All you present and potential writers and directors, here's a little advice for you. Every one of the potential adaptations I've covered on this show would be significantly improved with a soundtrack by Green Day. Nearly everyone. I will not insult the Holocaust survivors. But seriously, even some of the books I don't like, Red Rising or Artemis, you throw in Welcome to Paradise in the background, and it's already ten times more entertaining. Okay, I've got to stop building up to the discussion and just talk about the album. But then I feel like if you're my age and you've heard this album, and I know you have, its quality speaks for itself. The first four tracks alone consist of American Idiot, Jesus of Suburbia, Holiday, and Boulevard of Broken Dreams, four of the most iconic tracks of this century. You can pick and choose which order they appear on your top ten list of Green Day songs, but chances are if you look at any major publication, those four songs will be somewhere on that list. The fact that we nearly didn't get the album that we got almost makes it feel miraculous. Green Day wrote this album after losing all the master tracks for the album they originally planned to make, Cigarettes and Valentines. Those tapes were eventually recovered, but the few songs that they have released from that track are now either B-sides or exclusive to live recordings of their shows. The album that exists in their place is the near opposite of what the band was associated with up to this point. A sprawling, punk-infused rock opera with character arcs and a thematic throughline. It catapulted their modern image and made them the most hyped band of the 2000s. I'm still wearing my American Idiot t-shirt. And can you blame me? What they made is an absolute masterpiece. And it's not just because the songs are catchy. Let's focus this part of the episode, therefore, on the plot of American Idiot. As broad a term as that may seem. The storyline of American Idiot is fairly straightforward. It's a coming-of-age story with a basic three-act structure, following how its teenage protagonist rises and falls on his own moods and addictions. There's only three named characters in the album, although technically it's two, because once Jesus of Suburbia arrives in his new city, having lost the motivation to do what he was originally planning to do, he takes on a new persona called Saint Jimmy, a potentially homicidal maniac with an addictive personality, both figuratively and literally. Then, two songs after Jimmy's introduction, 
we're introduced to his counterpart, a rebellious girl by the name of. Actually, we don't know. The lyrics literally refer to her as what's her name. That's not a mistake. That's a plot point. She becomes a symbol of resistance, which Jesus has been looking for, giving him the opportunity to join in a cause and fight against the system. But while Jesus slash Jimmy tries to maintain his new rebel lifestyle, his addiction to drugs overtakes what what's-her-name came to represent for him, and so she leaves him behind. Thus begins his maturation into a character who has to own up to his own faults and live with them, even as he returns to his old home. Let's talk about the obvious comparison everybody goes to when talking about this album's place in music history, because these themes are not exclusive to American Idiot. I see it in publications about Green Day, in reference books for the greatest albums of all time, even my college teachers. Well, okay, they would be the ones to say this, but their immediate response to when I say that American Idiot is great is this statement. You know what I love about it? I love that it's a huge send-up to The Who. They were referring to Quadrophenia. Okay, yeah, Armstrong has mentioned in interviews that that album was hugely inspirational for their work here. Similar to American Idiot, Quadrophenia follows a teenage protagonist named Jimmy. Oh, hey, coincidence? Jimmy is likewise disillusioned from his parents and goes out to seek his fortune with his mates in the mod culture, creating new identities for himself along the way. Only as time goes by, he becomes likewise lost and disillusioned in their presence. Jimmy and Quadrophenia even rags on pencil pushers who work with big businesses, the same kind of sad job that Jesus ends up taking on briefly as he forces himself to grow up. The Who's album does have a more ambiguous ending than American Idiot. We're supposed to intuit what happens to Jimmy after a massive rainstorm at sea. Whereas Saint Jimmy... Um... Don't worry, Jesus himself is okay, just really fucking depressed. I listened to Quadrophenia in preparation for this show, and I can definitely appreciate a lot of what The Who created with that album. There's some elegant leitmotifs and strong symbolic storytelling going on in the story of Jimmy. However, if we're talking about taste in music, my parents were decent enough to know that I had my own. I did not listen to The Who growing up, And if my parents did introduce me to music, it was mostly Broadway musicals and then Pink Floyd when I was 17. The former stayed with me. The latter I likewise admire, but don't actively seek out. Thinking about rock music specifically, for something to get stuck in my head, it needs to be simple enough to follow, but performed with incredible gusto. The production value in Quadrophenia is insane and very elegant at times. Same with Tommy, which I think is a superior, much more memorable album in general. But there's something so much more raw, brutal, and direct about an album that is predominantly just two guitars and a set of drums. 
There is production value, I say to appease the sticklers, but the fact that voice manipulation and synthesized instruments are used sparingly and to a specific effect within the narrative of American Idiot helps make the character's turmoil feel more visceral. The reason why the simplicity of the plot works is because of the synergy between music and lyrics to capture the intense emotional turmoil that the characters feel internally. So while the album doesn't have as many characters or an intricate plotline, like Tommy or The Wall, the intensity of Jesus' emotions are captured just as effectively as in any other pre-existing rock opera. It's the kind of intensity that a teenager or a college student feels as their responsibilities start piling in on top of each other, as the world around them crumbles into a mass of warring nations and political debate. You're left questioning your purpose in all of this, wondering whether people you meet with on the street or even the people you live with really care so much about the state of your city, country, world. This album was released just on the verge of George W. Bush's re-election. The world was still struggling to find justification to the Iraq War, a debate that still hangs over our heads as the fighting continues in the Middle East. But that's not the only time when American Idiot felt relevant. In fact, in the 14 years since its release, it was never irrelevant. The only song from this album that has become dated is a B-side featured in the deluxe edition called Governator. Yep, you guessed it. It's pretty much a string of Terminator jokes written one year after Schwarzenegger was elected governor of California. That's the kind of song that would definitely date American Idiot if it was part of the actual album. Although, let's be real, right now... It must be so tempting to write a variation of that song called You're Fired. Billy Joe Armstrong is super outspoken about his political views. If you watch the documentary Broadway Idiot about the making of the American Idiot musical, there's a moment where Billy talks about Trump attending the premiere, and he gives the bluntest, What the fuck are you doing here? And you immediately get why. Oh, by the way, did I mention that there's an American Idiot musical? At the center of the earth in the parking lot of the 7-Eleven where I was taught The motto was just a lie It says home is where your heart is, but what a shame Cause everyone's heart doesn't beat the same It's beating out of time Great! So now I get to provide two separate plot synopses in one episode. American Idiot the Musical follows the same basic framework as the album, just with additional storylines, new and expanded characters, and additional songs largely taken from the 2009 album 21st Century Breakdown. In the show, Jesus' actual name is Johnny and his maturation coincides with that of his two closest friends, Will and Tunny. The three of them feel the same kind of disillusionment, and so propose to journey to the city together. However, Will abandons that venture when he discovers his girlfriend has become pregnant, and Tunny, who barely gets a name drop in the original album's lyric book, 
become so distanced from his original aspirations that he becomes brainwashed into joining the army and suffering an injury in Afghanistan. The stage play won the Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album for the original cast recording, and it won two Tony Awards for Best Scenic Design and Lighting Design. It received a nomination for Best Musical, though it lost that one to Memphis, the only musical to have won that award in the past two decades, which I hear absolutely no buzz about whatsoever. Sorry, director Christopher Ashley. You made me proud to be Canadian with Come From Away, but I still don't know anything about your other work. Although, I'm not necessarily saying that American Idiot should have won Best Musical that year. I really like that American Idiot exists in this format. It's taking the material to a different media and a very different audience. It adds new perspectives and plot lines to the album, and both the instrumental and vocal compositions are really creative and entertaining. But if I can be the pretentious asshole just this one time, I would say that the script, as in the dialogue, is messy. Most of the spoken words in the show take the form of letters that Johnny sends to and from his friends, venting about all the fucked up aspects of the society that he's witnessing. To that end, what he says is often meant to be messy. Grungy, thuggish, a lot of heavy punk symbolism. It's definitely in the style of something that Billy Joe Armstrong would write. The dialogue was even co-written by Michael Mayer, who also gave the world Spring Awakening, another great show about rebellious teenagers and disillusionment, set in the 1800s but written with modern inflections. If I'm allowed to be slightly snobbish about Green Day's music though not as much as the rest of the punk rock community, that's for sure. I'm going to say this much. In a song like Longview, where there's a big build-up to Armstrong singing the word masturbation, when it's part of the climax of the song, literally and figuratively, it feels earned, and it's friggin' badass. Compare that to the American Idiot musical, where right after the titular song, Johnny's first line of dialogue is, I jerked off into oblivion. That's just too much in my face for my liking. Which is probably the last dirty thing I'll ever say in my entire life. What? I was the weird isolated teenager, not the dirty teenager. I hate dirty teenagers. It happens when you grow up surrounded by them. The quality of this musical also varies depending on the performance. Which sounds obvious, but for some reason or other, every separate cast I've ever seen perform this show can't seem to decide what Green Day is supposed to sound like on stage. The one live performance of the musical I've attended was at the Tom Hendry Theater in Winnipeg, and I very much enjoyed it. All the actors seemed well-suited for their parts, including some surprises I'll discuss later, and the show seemed to capture an interpretation of the album that I hadn't considered before. But then I started diving down the rabbit hole of American Idiot the Musical on YouTube. And it's a clusterfuck. There are three things that I am trained to hate, not just in musical theater, but in music in general. Singers who don't sing on pitch, singers who can't keep the rhythm, and worst of all, singers who use their head voice rather than their gut voice. 
I've seen performances of this show that break all those rules, Los Angeles, and rather than making their voices sound awesome, these kids end up sounding whiny and petulant, like a bad night at a karaoke bar. Or how I sounded at the beginning of this episode. The original Broadway cast, at least in the album, they can control most of that because they're making an effort to make their voices sound their very best. Stark Sands and Rebecca Naomi Jones are especially strong as Tunney and What's-Her-Name, respectively. They manage to capture the right balance between rock and Broadway aesthetic in their voices. The other actors, including John Gallagher Jr. from Spring Awakenings, they're fine, but there's still some of that head singing where everyone sounds a little too nasal and, yeah, and I don't care what you think. That's not quite the tone I'd go for. However, I shouldn't detract from the experience of anyone who actually saw the show in its original Broadway run and enjoyed it. The musical ran for 421 performances from April 2010 until April 2011, including 76 performances with Billy Joe Armstrong playing St. Jimmy. Which, uh... One, two, one, two, three, four! Uh, you're gonna pay good money to watch that. The show wasn't a huge success outside of those performances, and it kind of makes sense why. The reviews for the show were more mixed than your average Broadway hit, but along with that, the political climate had changed. The whole thanks Obama mentality hadn't fully set in just yet. And back in 2010, the public was slightly more divided on how relevant Green Day was as a band. These days, it's not uncommon for me to see people describe 21st Century Breakdown as the underrated album. An honor it shares with 2000's Warning. Honestly, both have aged pretty well in my opinion. Well, okay, the second half of Warning works better than the first half, though certainly not as well as the entirety of American Idiot. There have been plenty of companies ready to stage this musical over the years. Young theater troops really set on doing something wild that they related to when they were teenagers. Some of them do great, some less so. But often they still largely feel like they're trying to capture the sensation of the original. American Idiot was a massive shot to the veins that American culture and the culture at large really needed. It captured so much of the teenage mindset and skyrocketed the band to a level they hadn't reached since Dookie in 1994. The music was addictive, the politics were sharp, and the manic energy of every track was just unparalleled. This may be slightly out of context, but you know what? This really was an out-of-body and out-of-mind experience for my generation. It was enthralling and absolutely timely and relevant in a way no other album from that era was. Of course, the great thing is, or maybe it's just really sad, but 
it never stopped feeling relevant to our culture. And that became all the more clear when the sun set on November 8, 2016. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about just how real these emotions are, and how one company should really capitalize on that before they lose their chance. Because if we're gonna be real, you guys have a whole 23 months to get this thing off the ground so that it can really feel like it was absolutely worth it. Let's go! Would any of you be at all surprised if I say the words American Idiot Movie and HBO in the same sentence? Well, the American Idiot Movie is being produced by HBO. This is not a gag, this is legitimately happening. It's the most current discussion I've had for a potential adaptation since the last musical I covered, and so far, this one hasn't done anything to make me question the filmmaker's sanity. Well, there's only two bits of information that have been actually confirmed about this production, so that kind of helps. HBO greenlit this movie in October 2016, and Billy Joe Armstrong is still attached to reprise his role as Saint Jimmy. Yeah, 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 they get the point. It's honestly amazing that it did take this long to get the movie the green light. Although, to be fair, this isn't the first time a company tried it. The film rights for the musical were first optioned in April 2011, around the time the show was closing down. Of all companies, however, the one that bought them the first time round was Playtone, a company founded by Tom Hanks. I know that Forrest Gump is supposed to be way more subversive than most people think it is, but still, Tom, this is not what I expected. The film was expected to be released in 2013, and director Michael Mayer, who wrote and directed the stage show, was attached to direct the film. Screenwriter Dustin Lance Black, who won an Oscar for the Harvey Milk biopic, wrote the first draft of the script, which was also handed off at one point to Roland James, who probably is best known for being a writer on Weeds and Boardwalk Empire. However... That rewrite reportedly happened after the film was much delayed due to what Mayer describes as Hollywood bullshit. I still kind of speculate that there was a lack of incentive from a political standpoint, which was holding the studio back from making or releasing the film. Well, good news for you, but terrible news for the rest of us, buddy. Trump's campaign is on the rise, and even if Hillary's the lesser of two evils, she's still got a lot of problems, so whoever wins this election, we'd best strike while the ember's hot. So, one month before the election, 
Billy Joe Armstrong finally told NME that HBO had greenlit the film, which was receiving a rewrite. By who? We don't know. Armstrong did mention something that I'm very interested in, however, which is that the updated script was going to take a more surreal approach from the album or the musical, which I'm all for. I love seeing stuff that baffles me, but also connects back to something I love. You can dive into existentialism or weird, trippy, psychedelic imagery all you want, and I would not bat an eyelash. He also said it was going to be shocking and offensive. Words that sound like music in my ears. I mean, it worked for Pink Floyd's The Wall. I still have nightmares about animated flowers doing horrible things to each other. Anywho! With Trump's election came a huge resurgence in American idiot iconography. That was around the time I saw the musical for the first time. And even though there isn't any immediate stand-in for Trump in the musical, the iconography was all over the stage. That infamous image of Pepe the Frog as Donald Trump very prominently featured in the background. You alt-right assholes trying to make a statement? All right then, here it is on display. Looks fucking stupid, doesn't it? During the Revolution radio tour, the band reconfigured the original song ever so slightly by singing The Subliminal Mind Trump America. The song became an anthem of protest against the new American president. And you know who else brandished that weapon? The British. They did not take to Trump at all during his visit to London this July, and they had to make sure he knew. A campaign to get the song to number one on the UK singles charts eventually brought it to number 25, which is still pretty significant. And the UK singles download chart for that week featured American Idiot very prominently at number two. For an album and a song specifically written with an anti-Bush leaning in mind, it's only become all the more appropriate with the arrival of a man who's known for twisting his words, trying to keep the public stupid, exploiting the division in society to his own agenda, and basically pissing off every country he doesn't have not-so-secret affiliations with. So, if there was ever a time to make this movie happen, if it wasn't 2007, it's now. As in, within the next two years now. Preferably within the next 18 months now. Summer of 2020 at the latest now. This is taking a lot longer than it should. Production on movies based on albums usually happens within a few years of their initial release. With both Tommy and Quadrophenia, there was a six-year gap between album and movie. With The Wall, it was just three years. Now true, not all concept albums necessarily need an adaptation. David Bowie made up for the lack of a Ziggy Stardust movie with everything he ever starred in but you would think that producers would leap at the opportunity to take advantage of a show's newfound popularity and explore it in a cinematic form. Or television form, that can work too. I do think that a rewrite of the material seems perfectly legitimate if they want to update the material from stage to screen. And for all I know, they may not have any specific Trumpian references in mind for the movie. Admittedly, 
there are only two overtly political songs in the original album, American Idiot and Holiday. But then again, those are so strongly political that any attempt to dissociate them from images of war and politics would really tamper with how effective those songs are. There's also something slightly underwhelming whenever you're watching a production of this show that doesn't have overtly political imagery on stage. I mentioned the Pepe meme from the Winnipeg production. In the Broadway show, they take it to a broader, more symbolic level. The entire stage is peppered with TV screens, showing either harsh realities or just superficial programming that's designed to keep people ignorant and distracted, like something out of Orwell's 1984. Those screens help to contrast how alert the characters are supposed to feel to the heartbeat of the nation. These are not subtle images, but they at least give some context to what the show is criticizing. When it's just a bunch of teens dancing around their dirty bedrooms and hanging out at 7-Eleven, yeah, it's taking imagery from the album, but it's not really saying anything about the world at large. You're limited for space in the theatrical field, so you've got to take advantage of it and make sure you're saying something that relates to the music, even if... No, especially if it offends people. I do not like getting political in public, but I do feel that in order to embrace the concept of American Idiot, you need to be ready to get angry about something. It can't just be, uh, stuff and things. Well, it can be stuff and things, but what specifically in those stuff and things makes you angry? Now, if you want to reference Green Day's music as much as possible to express that angst, you can always add new songs to the lineup. This was apparently not going to be the case when Roland James was writing the script, as he said his interpretation was going to remove most of the dialogue, okay, I can get into that, and make the runtime shorter. Okay, I get what you're aiming for, but... The more Green Day in my life, the better for everybody. The band added three new-ish songs to the show when it opened on Broadway. Favorite Son, Too Much Too Soon, and When It's Time. Chances are, you want to surprise and excite your audience by adding new meaning, new context, and new story beats to the movie. So aside from the obligatory new, new song they always write in an attempt to snag an Oscar nomination... Admittedly, Academy Award nominee Billy Joe Armstrong does have an interesting ring to it. What can we expect to be added from their other albums? Well, I hate to piss off the hardcore fans, but... I'm not counting on their older material making the cut. I know, I know. Look, I'm thinking as a producer and writer here, not as a fanboy. I love Dookie, Insomniac, and Nimrod just as much as everyone else. But the more traditional punk vibe does not match the rock opera tone. And most of the songs wouldn't fit or add much to the more sprawling narrative. So I'm guessing these additions would probably come from, once again, 21st Century Breakdown which features a lot of songs that deconstruct the faults in various American systems. East Jesus Nowhere takes on organized religion. Peacemaker, at least the way I hear it, makes a big riff on terrorism. 
And the static age expresses a kind of digital anxiety, or the feeling of being overwhelmed with advertising. However, just for fun, I will postulate one new song for each separate storyline, and all of them from a different album. The one piece from Dookie that I suspect could work in this story is Longview, which is among my top ten Green Day songs of all time. That would probably make a lot of sense showing up as part of Will's lonely rants back in Jingletown. Yes, that's actually the name of their hometown. As he wastes his time hoping for something interesting to happen. Their most recent album, Revolution Radio, features Bang Bang, which was written as a rant against mass shootings in America, but could also fit the military vibe of Tunney's storyline in Afghanistan. And if you do include anything from Uno Dos Tre, it always sounds better live, but that only helps me make my point. There's a fairly common critique of the musical that the female characters are very thinly drawn, even with the additional songs. Well, here's something for What's-Her-Name. If not a solo for her, then something to perform in the movie that feeds into her rebel spirit. If I can steal one line from Bohemian Rhapsody, imagine thousands of people doing this in unison. I tend to interpret What's-Her-Name's introduction in the song She's a Rebel, literally. And she already sings 21 Guns, one of the most overt anti-war songs the band has ever wrote. So why not give her a protest song? She can be a justice warrior, and 99 Revolutions could potentially feed into that spirit. So I can see that playing in the concert or show that she takes Johnny to. The one where Johnny suspects the band is going to suck. Well, he could potentially be right. If the frontman isn't played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, you think my band is going to suck? Fuck you with my multiple Tony Awards, sick lyrics, and army of fanboys and girls. Oh, this isn't me speculating on whether Miranda wants to be in this movie. He wants to be in this movie! Straight from his Twitter feed, on October 6th, 2016, the day this movie was greenlit, he wrote the following statement, with periods between each word, just so you'd get the point. Can. I. Be. In. This. I'll. Play. Anyone. I'm not sure what Disney would think when their precious commodity from Moana and Mary Poppins Returns dresses up like a punk and belts out anti-establishment anthems. But as someone who desperately wants to see this happen, I'll just say this in response. Please, yes, H-B-O, listen to this man! Now who's he gonna play? Well, we can't really cast him as one of the teenage protagonists, and... Yeah, we get it. Miranda could potentially play the favorite son, the symbol of the ideal American whose charisma motivates Tunney to join the army. 
As I already mentioned, he could play the frontman or at least a prominent band member from What's-Her-Name's concert. Actually, what would make that even more insane would be if he then showed up again as the rock and roll boyfriend who steals Will's girlfriend at the end of the show. I don't know whether that makes the character more or less sympathetic in the audience's eyes, but if I'm being honest, out of all the characters, Will is the one I have the least empathy for. If I ever was that lazy, despondent, and uncaring, I wouldn't be complaining if Lin-Manuel Miranda stole my girlfriend. I have no other individuals to pitch in regards to the teenage protagonists. I hear that Lucas Hedges, the guy from Manchester by the Sea, is going to be performing in Trey Edward Schultz's new movie musical. He kind of looks like a Jesus of Suburbia type. But I've never heard him sing outside of an interview on The Tonight Show, which was too cringy for me to make you listen to. I'll wait until he proves himself in a more professional context before I judge. But there is one aspect of the show that is quite common among smaller productions, including the one I saw in Winnipeg. In that production, there were two notable changes to the cast most people were familiar with. The characters of Tunny and St. Jimmy were played by women. I was not aware of this ahead of time, and I really took to it. I did hear one fair critique from one of the other patrons afterwards, who took issue with the fact that making St. Jimmy into a woman kind of indulges a stereotype that associates women with drugs. That's a very legitimate criticism that I can understand. However, I was also much more impressed with the depiction of Tunny in this performance, because it gave a lesbian angle to the character's romance with a military nurse. I already liked Tunny the most out of the main characters, but this added a very effective, very sincere extra layer. If the filmmakers were open to that idea, I would not be set against it. There's nothing in the script that states that any one of these leads needs to be a specific gender. But let's ignore that little hypothetical diatribe and replace it with another. I'm assuming that the producers and director would be smart enough to know who should play what. But with that in mind, they still need to absolutely confirm the director. Michael Mayer has not said anything about whether he will be directing the HBO film, and he's not unqualified as a film director. He's made three feature films, the most recent of which being an adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull, starring, repeat after me, Saoirse Ronan. I will never stop flaunting my accurate pronunciation of that name. So hiring Mayer for the American Idiot movie would be a very legitimate step forward for the production. He does have experience with a previous incarnation of the story, so it only makes sense. But there's still no confirmation that he is attached. So I'm just going to be the obnoxious asshole one more time and shout out who I think would be the ideal director for this movie if Mayer doesn't take the mantle. Look, I need this to work. Two of my favorite musicals of all time have already been handed over to a British dude who is about as far from being as epic or fantastical as they deserved to be. Is that a premature judgment on the one movie that has yet to be released? Sure, but as I've said before, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. So, 
hypothetically, if I was in charge of handing over directorial duties for my favorite rock album of all time, I'd like to ask this obvious question. Which director best exemplifies the polar opposite of Tom Hooper? And the entire universe screamed out in unison. David fucking Fincher! Okay, thank you, Karen O. I think they get the point. Oh my fucking god! What was that I said about Fight Club earlier? <sighs> Fincher has turned American cynicism into an art form. His entire filmography is so morbid, so nihilistic, and so anarchic. Seven, the game. Zodiac, The Social Network. He's practically made to adapt this musical to film. He's certainly no stranger to the format. His catalog of music videos from everybody, from Michael Jackson to Madonna to Sting, speaks to that. But he's also no stranger to adaptation, though he's never written any of the scripts himself. I run a little hot and cold with the American adaptation of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The Elizabeth I know would never describe herself as insane. But then Gone Girl takes what I would describe as a boring first half and entertaining second half of a book and streamlines the entire thing to create a very tense, thoroughly entertaining whole. But along with the nihilistic tone that comes from a Fincher film, here's the main selling point for me. Jeff Cronenworth is an amazing cinematographer, and I hope he shoots everything that Fincher makes for the rest of time. Now, I don't know how surreal the script that Armstrong described is. And so far, I don't know how surreal Fincher can go as a director. The concepts and characters he explores in his films can be very heady and unusual at times. But the most I see for abstract imagery and abstract characters converging in one place is probably Fight Club. I discount Benjamin Button because that makeup and those visual effects are still grounded in the film's reality. But even if you just lean into some of the weird, occasionally psychedelic edits and shots in Fight Club, that could very well be what an American Idiot movie would need to fit all the criteria and even earn you a couple of Oscar nominations. Again, I can only dream. I would pay so much money to watch that movie every day in the theater because I can only assume how epic it would be. It feels so perfect for how I imagine this world should look like if you take the music and the lyrics as they are. I still have no control over this material. And if the band members have their own version of their film, their interests should take priority. At least I hope they all agree on a vision. Or do I have to make another Bohemian Rhapsody joke? There's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. Oh hey, wait, can we get Rami Malek in this movie too? I don't know where, but he'll fit in someplace, I'm sure. See, this is where my mind goes! I gotta chill. Or not. 
This was always the discussion I wanted to build up to on this show. Okay, I hit one roadblock where that other movie musical was confirmed, so I had to cover that before I lost my chance to speculate. But this, somehow, really has become the ultimate adaptational subject for me. This was my Catcher in the Rye, the adaptation that's been speculated about for so long that I have most wanted to see. Not make. See. There are a lot of people who can envision this film better than I can in my weird mind. But that's okay. The point is that I've always been interested in seeing how other people envisioned this material. And while it would differentiate from my interpretations, the fact that it's based on something as wide-reaching as an album makes that extremely logical. People can each have their own ideas about what these characters and environments look like and sound like, and that's what I love about American Idiot. Any director, whether Mayer or Fincher, or anybody else they actually decide to hire, would present the material differently. I would be happy to see any of them, and I wouldn't really have any reason to protest, because I would still have the music as it was originally produced, as I heard it, and as I felt it. Let's take a break for a moment. When we come back... Well... We'll be right back. Summer has come and passed The innocent can never last Normally I'd say my favorite type of Green Day song is one of those 5-10 to minute medleys that takes you on a wild emotional ride through different stanzas. Jesus of Suburbia and Homecoming, 21st Century Breakdown, Misery, which is more one theme but it's still really big and sprawling, even Forever Now from Revolution Radio. However, I respond to different songs at different times of my life, and I can tell that I'm connecting to a song when I replay it something like 30 times until the melody line has been drilled into my brain. There have been a couple of songs that have spoken to me very strongly lately, but of all things, even though I can't count myself as one under the modern definition, the song I've probably binged the most is this. I'm on the beat of the door running. I don't need your authority. Yeah. 
can't really call myself part of any one specific group. I don't really have concrete answers as to who I am, except that I'm a white guy whose biggest concern is that he probably has Asperger's. But somehow, listening to minority has become so cathartic, because in the last few months, I've often felt that there's nothing more powerful and nothing else that I want to be more than a minority of one. I don't want to be anyone's poster boy. I don't want to listen to anyone telling me what to do. I don't want to answer to anyone. I don't want to care about what other people think of me or how they relate to me. I just want to be myself, even as I wrestle with the fact that I still don't know what that self is, because I'm so intimidated by everything I don't understand. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know if anything is wrong with me, although I know there are aspects of my life I'm not proud of. I don't know who I'm supposed to be on this earth, but I've often felt that the world doesn't want me to be anything, just a drone serving other people's agendas. Even as I fall, even as I fail in accomplishing them. Even when I've completed something that I'm proud of at the moment, I always shudder, I always shudder at the potential that others will look down on it because it doesn't relate to their interests or that they might chastise me or judge me because of how I wanted to feel. I've had to live with those feelings since I was a teenager, where the only people, men, women, and monsters who gave me some solace and comfort, only existed in movies, musicals, and trapped inside my head. I've always felt the need to separate myself from everyone else. I've often felt the need to separate myself from anyone else and to abandon all the things that want to tie me down, everything that made me feel overwhelmed, burdened, hurt, or abandoned. Society, the patriarchy, organized religion, all forms of politics, my insecurities, every sick, twisted person who has contributed to my insecurities, and whatever the hell this world has decided to call reality. I don't know how much Green Day would relate to how I personally feel, but within this, within the confines of my parasocial relationship with them, kids, look up the word parasocial, it's really interesting, I almost feel like they might understand. I'm not a confident person. I'm not a triumphant person. And American Idiot isn't a triumphant album. It goes to dark places, and my mind has gone to dark places. The fact that their music lets me feel all of these things, both positive and negative, without feeling judged is something that I often feel a desperate need for. Every time I hear one of their songs, every time I perform one of their songs, there's an emotional release through which all of my tensions and anxieties get ciphered. Nothing can stand between me and my emotions. And in my own way, I feel utterly unconquerable. I'm really glad nobody told me I had to listen to Green Day when I was younger. Because it meant that I could find out that they mattered to me on my own. And that they mattered in a way that felt specific to my aspirations. 
and my internal feelings. It's a bit of a cliche to say that there's a Green Day song for every aspect of my life. If I could, I'd probably make my own concept album out of the songs that aren't featured in the Broadway show. Parasocial, the unauthorized Green Day musical, coming to you... maybe. Big maybe. It might also involve interpretations of pre-existing fantasy characters from my favorite films. Kind of like Ready Player One, except way more depressing and aware of how toxic being like Ready Player One can be. And featuring a way better soundtrack. And directed by Guillermo del Toro. I just had to name drop him one last time this season. I don't know if they'll ever listen to this show. But I want to say thank you to Billy, Mike, and Trey for allowing me to feel those things. For reading the pulse of a generation and translating it into a universal language. And not the damn universal language of the alchemist. I don't care about that anymore. Thank you for so much of my experiences and being one of the few things that I could turn to in the last five years to feel like someone else got me. It's not just the rebel spirit or the effort to protest against a higher power. It's the insecurity that comes from living in an age that you don't understand, around people you try to understand but often can't, where you feel like the only person who can stand up for you is you. Even as, even as I continue to try to connect with others who do care and whom I want to understand, it gives me solace to know that somebody, in one way or another, was able to say to me that those feelings were okay. You guys gave me the catharsis I didn't know I needed. Thank you for letting those things matter to me. Thank you for giving me this. American Idiot has been here for 14 years, and its impact is more epically clear to me than it ever was before. When they make an American Idiot movie, and I hope it's soon, I hope that some aspect of how it made me feel is also present in its presentation, but it doesn't need to be the exact way that I expect it to. Even as is, the story this album tells is so simple that it won't be hard to make it appeal to viewers from ages 15 to 105. Well, okay, maybe that old may be a reach, but you get the point. American Idiot matters to me. It matters to so many of us. I can only hope that the movie would matter just as much. Until then... We're in the dark, wondering how What's-Her-Name has been. I started fucking running as soon as my feet touched ground. We're back in the barrio and to you and me that shingles out that song.
such an idiot. This music is way too loud. We're gonna have to tone it down a little. Sorry. Hello, and welcome to the Appendices, the segment where I look back on my old content and either expand on the subjects I couldn't discuss before, or just generally rip the episode you just heard to shreds. I'm sorry. Legitimately, this time. Like, 30 seconds into listening to this again. This episode fucking sucks. I know, judging from stats, that this became a fairly popular episode in the aftermath, but I can't personally stand by it. Not only is it one of my least favorite episodes I've created, it's also the one where I can't take the particular character I'm emulating seriously anymore. I couldn't take them that seriously even when I released this episode in December of last year, but the experience of making this episode made one thing clear to me, and this could shock a lot of people I knew in college. This episode is a lie. It's a lie about who I am, about who I aspire to be, about my current taste in music, and about the last five years of my life prior to its release. It's not a lie about the quality of American Idiot. As an album and a symbol of a generation, American Idiot is iconic for all the reasons people say it is. It's fun, thrilling, and provocative, and catchy as hell. For that matter, it's also not a lie about what Green Day is good at. They're especially good at poking the bear, waving their middle fingers in the air and sticking it to a clearly dysfunctional system, especially in the years 2004 and 2016 respectively. They aspire to be anarchic rebels and are not afraid to say so. But I had to really accept at a certain point that Green Day was never my scene. I started listening to Green Day not in my high school days when American Idiot came out, but ten years after the fact, in my third year of university. And I got into them for the exact opposite reason you should get into any band at all, but especially punk bands. I assumed that everyone else liked them, and I wanted to fit in. Having only listened to their entire discography just a few weeks prior to recording this episode, having only listened to their entire discography just a few weeks prior to recording this original episode, I can personally confirm that Green Day is not the be-all and end-all. With American Idiot, they made one album that I definitely call great, and a lot of their others have several great songs in them. But besides American Idiot, I rarely listen to a whole Green Day album, instead skipping to whatever my personal favorites are that week, like Macy's Day Parade from Warning, or East Jesus Nowhere from 21st Century Breakdown. And there are songs on their albums that I do think are actively cringy to listen to, mostly in the trilogy with songs like Fuck Time and Nightlife. Even a song like Kill the DJ is more a guilty pleasure than something I would even put in my top 50 songs by them. It's also especially ironic that I tried so hard to stand Green Day for so long because... I've said this before and I'll say it again. I suck at being political. I lean to the left on a number of humanitarian and environmental subjects. But I really hate having to take sides in a debate which involves campaigns, parties, and levels of government because I just don't give a shit. 
Along with my criticisms of organized religions, my disinterest in political parties is something I take very seriously. Since most of the time when I see people debating who should lead their country, province, or whatever, I just see a bunch of adults acting like children and obnoxiously chanting how they were right and everyone else was wrong. That's why I distance myself from most electoral discussions, and why I especially regret what I said about Hillary Clinton. That particular comment was not an actual statement of my political beliefs. I have no actual opinions about Clinton because I didn't really pay that much attention to her policies back in 2016. All I really knew was that I didn't want what actually happened during that election to happen. The comment about her being the quote-unquote lesser of two evils was mostly said to shock people. A stupid reason on multiple levels, especially since it wasn't even framed in the style of a joke. To anyone who heard that and felt like it was inaccurate and reductive, I sincerely apologize. But putting musical quality and politics aside, it's time I finally owned up to it. Although I never actively said that I love all of Green Day's work, this episode really hammers home for me the kind of character I was trying to embody for way too long. The shallow fanboy that I really, thoroughly, absolutely despise, who doesn't question what he's enjoying and what it's saying implicitly about its main character. There are two parts of this episode I especially hate. The first five minutes, and everything else after it. Okay, sorry, I had to. The first five minutes especially strike me as really cringy and dumb. And the reason why is very similar to the aforementioned parallel I made between American Idiot and David Fincher's Fight Club. A lot of Fight Club's fans are the ones that hang the poster of the Ten Rules on their dorm room wall, and talk about how it's so cool to be a brawny man without rules or regulations, and are often unaware that, especially in its second half, the film is actively tearing down the groupthink mentality and macho man complex those types of men personify. American Idiot doesn't say the same about punk rebels exactly, but it ultimately had a similar effect on me at a certain point, and especially after I watched a video synopsis of the album's story produced by the YouTuber Polyphonic, I had to accept that the main character of Jesus slash Johnny was never really meant to be idolized. Johnny, despite what he believes, is the titular American idiot. He's a slacker, a drug addict, a man afraid of commitment, both to a cause and to a relationship. His talk about leaving home and not caring if you don't care is all just talk, and he ultimately fails in his goals. I tried to remain ignorant of that idea even after I saw the musical live, in a production which, fun fact, I had actually intended to audition for, but backed out at the last minute due to a very serious panic. I always wanted to believe that the point of the story was to commit to a revolution, and to say fuck you and tear down the system, with Saint Jimmy being some kind of authority figure that had to be destroyed and overthrown. He does get destroyed, but in a very different context from the one I had created. 
While the album can be considered that kind of anthemic story, the main character of Johnny slash Jesus slash Saint Jimmy is not meant to be a positive representation of that anthem. That's the point. I'd been trying to find a narrative that suited me in a story that was never really meant for me. That persona, who liked American Idiot because he had assumed everyone else would like it, kind of was my Saint Jimmy. Sure, my version of Saint Jimmy wasn't as self-destructive, but it also wasn't helping me realize who I really wanted to be. I think you can definitely hear the struggles I had regarding my differing attitudes towards the album in this episode, as I tried to acknowledge the actual story of the piece and how I had previously thought it was supposed to make me feel. That's where the last ten minutes come into play. The final segment of this episode sounds very much like someone who knows that Green Day wasn't really trying to make a triumphant album, but wants to believe that it is. That person, if we're being real, doesn't even sound very punk, does he? He's trying to be, and yet you can see the cracks in the facade as he gives into the kind of person he's wanted to be for a very long time, but applying that mentality to the wrong genre. Ever since I was 16, I had rock bands and concept albums that I liked, but not necessarily ones that told this kind of story with this kind of character. When I was a young boy, I was always searching for narratives that spoke to the romantics, the people who believed deep down in their soul that they were meant for something and would strive for that ideal version of themselves, even if it meant leaving the world behind. The only band I listened to as a teenager that has really aged especially well is Mariana's Trench. But even their work only managed to do that for me in parts. They were a placeholder, as I waited until the day came when I could hear my soul erupt into the ultimate, resounding moment of catharsis, until the day came when I heard the call. Killjoy even before I knew who My Chemical Romance was. This seems improbable to any music fan who is not me, but after it happened, I came to see my discovery of MCR as predestined. I've always been on the outskirts, striving to live a glorious life with theatrical flair, but held back by so many circumstances and the kinds of stories that I love and strive to tell all tie into themes of 
living through trauma and conquering those forces that torment our minds, bodies, and souls. It's a big reason why I often turn to stories that immersed me in a world completely separate from ours, or stories about social outcasts, those who had felt left behind, broken, scarred, and defeated, but defiant to the end, because it didn't matter what the world thought of them, because they loved themselves for who they were and what had happened to them. My Chemical Romance, and specifically The Black Parade, represents all of those things at once. And unlike how I've come to see American Idiot, The Black Parade gives me the sense that despite his flaws, we are meant to care through and through about the main character, the terminally ill patient. And by association, I was meant to care about myself. Gerard Way, Mikey Way, Ray Taro, and Frank Iero didn't change who I was. They made me realize and embrace who I was at a time I desperately needed to. That time was November 2018. I was 25 years old. I was in the middle of production on Echo. And I was trying to get this episode on American Idiot produced. When I saw the music video for Welcome to the Black Parade for the first time, in the midst of listening to a lot of Green Day songs, my immediate thought upon hearing and seeing it was, I'm supposed to be over this! Even though I had never been into it in the first place. Except I had, just not in the rock format. Everything I saw and heard recalled so much of what I had come to aspire to as an artist in one short burst. The story of a young man who could not live up to the high standards the world had set for him was cathartic enough on its own. But then, once he was greeted by death in a neo-realist dreamscape where everything was designed by Fritz Lang and filmed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, it was pure wish fulfillment, and I hadn't even wished for it. Some confused part of me made me look away, convinced that this was not what I was supposed to like. But I couldn't stop listening. And try as I might, I couldn't stop welling up as the song went on and on and on for five of the most heartbreaking yet empowering minutes of my life. It was raw and profound and beautiful all at once. I wasn't ready to be so moved by it, and yet it clearly did more than any other piece of music had since my teenage days looping the Broadway soundtrack to Les Miserables. This was seven years distant from that, and it all came pouring back. And even though it hurt, it felt like it had always been meant to be. Obviously at the time, the part of me that held on to Green Day for so long seemed threatened by MCR, which probably is the reason why the last segment consisted of me trying really hard to say something about how awesome and moving and cathartic the experience of listening to American Idiot was. Which it definitely can be, but like I said, not in the way that I was describing. At the time, I was feeling so much pressure to make this episode the way I assumed my college friends would have expected from me the guy trying too hard to be a punk jackass and never really making the effort, not because he was lazy, but because it wasn't really him. 
As the holiday season went on, however, I started listening to Welcome to the Black Parade incessantly on repeat. Huh, sound familiar? Then, one thing led to another, and suddenly I was impulse-buying the Black Parade off iTunes. It swept me away exactly how it was meant to, and I just let it. It scared me, not because I was opposed to the subject matter, but because I understood and felt it deeply. These actually were my thoughts and anxieties, made manifest in a painful, shocking, haunting style. But rather than leave me with nothing to cling to but feelings of helplessness and incompetence, the Black Parade filled me with a sense of aspiration, because woven into this narrative about death and disillusionment was the story of a man who inherently was a survivor, who despite all his sins and scars, wanted to be something other than what the world had imposed on him to defy the odds and strive to be the better man he was never given the chance to be. That was what I needed to hear at that turbulent time. Suddenly and authentically, I had a new set of icons. Everything I've seen by and associated with the band members since, from Three Cheers to Danger Days to I Brought My Bullets to Gerard's career as a comic book artist, has pretty much cemented those feelings of admiration and it still matters to me today. It made me open up about my feelings and my anxieties to people I never expected to, and especially knowing that the band, after several years out of the spotlight, has come back, even if ever so briefly, makes me feel like I could not have picked a better time to embrace something that mattered to me. Am I emo? I'm sure you're asking that question, but my response would basically be to ask you the same question. My simple answer is this. Kinda, but also not really at all. I dissociate from the stereotypes around emo culture, and I also don't listen to other, more traditional, legitimately calling themselves emo bands. MCR themselves do not call their music emo, and I think of their work as way more stimulating and thought-provoking than bands like Fall Out Boy. And if being deeply moved when I listen to this music makes me emo, then is a comic book like Mouse also emo? Is Shadow of the Colossus emo? Is The Hunchback of Notre Dame emo? Are Fritz Lang's Metropolis and Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc emo? Or are they just great works of art that make me feel deeply because that's what great art is meant to do? I just actively seek out that kind of art way more readily than the average Joe. Real emotional sincerity has always been something I've strived for. But in this case, emo feels more like a label than a representation of my actual state of mind. If someone were to call me emo, I'd probably just smile back at them, because even if I don't think of myself as such, at least that means I'm becoming more like the person I've always wanted to be, as I continue to phase out the last thing I tried to be. This episode was the last hurrah of my Saint Jimmy. The last chance he had to scream for the wrong kind of attention. Again, it may not have been a destructive persona, but it really was just that, a persona and one that I had to shed. I can still enjoy Green Day's music and willingly say that most of their albums are acclaimed for all the right reasons, 
but I don't feel obligated to look at them like they should be my gold standard anymore. The band's obviously going to continue with their work, since they've recently focused their efforts on their latest album, Father of All. I've listened to the brief snippets they've released, and I feel no obligation to listen to them again. The songs are short, but feel overproduced and way too poppy compared to the harsh, grungy style I came to appreciate from them for the longest time. They've gone from feeling like anarchists to feeling like, for lack of a better word, sellouts. Maybe they need to retire for about six years for people to realize they actually made that album because they wanted to. Then reunite in secret in order to blow the roof off the end of the decade. Or is that just another piece of wishful thinking? That reunion was the best thing that I could have asked for, though. That was amazing. I would willingly, maybe even happily, watch an American Idiot film adaptation should it happen. But at this point, I don't know whether they've lost their chance. After the impeachment trials, there's no guarantee that Trump will not get another chance to mess things up more than he already has. If the movie was actually being made, though, I feel like it would have made headlines by now. Casting announcements, or anything at all. And unfortunately, I feel like past this point, any potential hype the film could have had has already been dying slowly and painfully for a really long time. I don't know what Green Day's intentions are anymore, because I don't feel as invested as I once was. They're not the kinds of storytellers that I want to emulate. So, send the guys a letter bomb, because it's time for me to say, I don't love you like I did yesterday. That brings us to the end of the episode, and the end of season one. Thank you for listening, whether it be your first or your most recent listening experience. This was hard work, but also really fun for me, and I will be doing it again, so keep the conversation going. If you want to engage with this discussion in any way, if you have a suggestion for what subjects you'd like to hear more about, or what stories I should look into as potential episodes, please let me know. You can follow me on Instagram at DASkyThor. You can like our Facebook page at Adaptational, and you can also send me an email at adaptationalpod at gmail.com. That's adaptation, A-L, pod as in podcast, at gmail.com. Our theme music is provided by the East Village Opera Company. Thank you very much to those guys. Season 2 of Adaptational will be coming your way sometime in spring of 2020. I plan on having more guests on the show so you won't be worn down so much by my monotonous voice. I may even release a bonus episode discussing my best of the decade film list sometime in the next few months, so keep your ears peeled for that. But in the meantime, it's best to just leave everyone with a wish for a happy new year. May the coming decade give to you many new experiences and new perspectives. And may you find your own way to be the person you've always wanted to be. Keep those pages turning, and I'll see you next time on Adaptational. Adaptational.